Um, hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Carter Clement. This is Dominic Gargiulo. We're uh, both coming at you from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and uh, we are excited to bring you a new episode. As always, we'll be going over several new e-publications related to pediatric sports medicine, um, the papers that have just come out, bringing us some research that hasn't gotten into into print yet. And um, we are joined by some pediatric sports surgeons from around the country. It's Neeraj Patel from Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. This is Dax Markey from Greensboro, North Carolina. To kick things off, we're going to AJSM for an article out of HSS. It is entitled, Use Caution When Assessing Preoperative Leg Length Discrepancy in Pediatric Patients with ACL Injuries. The authors basically routinely get serial hip knee ankle x-rays on patients with open physes before they do ACLs so that they can follow the patients and make sure they're not getting a growth arrest later. And they noticed that these pre-op films may not be totally reliable, so they studied it. And they found that sure enough, lots of patients stand kind of unnaturally before surgery because they have a fresh injury. So it looked like they had a leg length discrepancy. And then that appeared to resolve post-op. So clearly that wasn't a real thing. The authors recommend just starting to monitor leg length discrepancy at a post-op visit. Simple enough. But I thought this was really interesting because I like to get pre-op films on ACL patients who are skelty immature, full length with an EOS machine, not to follow their uh, leg length discrepancy, but to make sure they don't have valgus that I can correct with guided growth. Yeah. I think this is applicable. I think the same thing can happen if they're standing kind of funny. And in fact, I remember one kid that I got tricked on. It was actually a CP kid, so a different situation, but I got completely tricked and then got to discuss it in my boards. But we uh, put on uh, a guided growth plate, which might've been unnecessary. Uh, it at least wasn't strictly necessary. Um, and then we just ended up taking it out a few months later. He had to be going back to the OR anyway. He had like a sort of hip down to toes kind of procedure. So it wasn't a big deal. It didn't really change his course of care, but it sort of drove the point home to me. So I don't know that this is going to change my practice. I'm just going to be that much more skeptical of my pre-op films, but I'm going to keep getting them before surgery to look at the valgus. Whereas if you're just looking at leg length, you don't really need them before. Are you guys getting, is anyone doing full length films before ACLs and skeletal immature kids? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, and for that reason, too, to look for the valgus and the, the leg length. And it's it's more so to, to also counsel the, the families that you may, there is a known complication of creating a growth arrest when you're drilling across, uh, especially in those preteen kids and you're, you're drilling through the physis, you might end up with that leg length discrepancy or an angular deformity and that we can fix it. So, yeah. uh, and, and if you set them up with that expectation and something goes wrong, uh, then you, you know, you don't, you look like you're uh, ahead of the game as opposed to trying to explain something after right. the fact. So I do get standing hips to ankles in the, for pre-op workups for those kids, yeah. but not for mostly leg lace, but like you said, more for angular deformity. Right. Yeah. I thought that was interesting that that was their priority. Neeraj, what about you? Are you getting uh, routine full-length films on these kids? Yes, I am um, preoperatively for ACLs, also for patellar instability situations. And um, those are the two most common scenarios, but yeah. I do. And it's interesting. I remember Pete, uh, Pete Fabrican presented this, I think at PRISM last year at one of the meetings. And, you know, it's kind of nice when uh, there's data that validates some of your own experiences or whatever. Yeah, Cause I've had a couple of these kids that were like very young. We signed up for an ACL on their standing alignment films preoperatively. It looked like they had valgus and stuff like that. You know, you kind of go in there intraoperatively and you're looking closer. And obviously we know that that, you know, drop the bovie core down, that kind of thing from the mechanical axis isn't the most accurate. And you can be fooled by that too. But 
you know, we kind of do that and you're like, wait a minute, it's going right through the middle. What's going on here? You know? And so, um, I've, I've then backed off and not done it. And you kind of second guess yourself after the fact too, like, did it, well, you know, how could I have kind of made a better decision and stuff like that? But it definitely happens. What I thought was interesting is, you know, the, uh, the authors talk about the knee being in a sort of unnatural position, I guess, due to acute injury and stuff like that. I've had some of these kids that we get these x-rays on them and they're not, I mean, they're several weeks out from their injury. So it's not like they're, you know, big, uh, big hemarthrosis that they're not bearing weight on and anything like that, holding a flex knee necessarily. Isn't the thought that we're not really doing much harm to the physis in, in general? Yeah, so for sure, that's the that's a thought. I mean, that's why these techniques were developed, obviously, right? But um, there have been case reports and small series and stuff like that of there still being uh, physial issues afterwards. Now, you know, whether that's because you're, even though you're not drilling through it, you know, you're reaming near it, and that kind of stirs up the biological environment, which is kind of what I explain to patients. And maybe that's why they're finding that overgrowth issue in that systematic review or meta-analysis um, similar to like when kids break a femur and then they overgrow that femur. Um, I wonder if it's something like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there are some case reports of, of these angular deformities and, uh, and things like that, even with the physial sparing techniques. So amongst Niraj L, you're, you're doing physial sparing for everybody and P or all skeletal immature patients. Yeah, for the most part. Um, and again, you know, there's obviously, and I'm sure Carter and, and Dom can, can chime in on this too, but there's obviously some debate on the exact, age cutoffs as to, you know, which procedure you do. Um, and certainly even in the youngest kids, you know, seven, eight, nine, that kind of thing, they're really small. A lot of folks will do the modified Macintosh, like the Coker McKinley thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, just from my sort of background and training, I was never really exposed to that. And I was exposed to the, uh, the Pifficeal ACL, um, from the guys at CHOP. And so I, I trained to do that and that's what I typically do. But again, we don't have like set, you know, if your if your age is X, then do Y procedure. I think um, there's some variability there, and we we kind of we published that in OJSM a couple of years back that showed that at, at certain ages there's this inflection point in terms of which uh, procedures are preferred. So like, you know, uh, physical sparing on both sides versus hybrid, you know, in that sort of like early teen kind of group, yeah. um, and then hybrid versus just transficeal in that sort of later teen group as they approach skeletal maturity. So. I think there's still some debate and some figuring out to do with that. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. I just want to say one thing about this uh, uh, paper, though. It is kind of a, like a, a kind of a duh paper, but, you know, a lot of papers like that, too, just just writing down and making a research project out of something so I already know. But uh, it is important, I think, to put it out there that a lot, and even when you're you're getting standing hips to ankles for something that's not an ACL or patellar instability, just in general, when you're looking at angular deformity kids, just making sure that the, the techs are really aware of, of, of the techniques to make sure patellas are facing forward and making sure that they're standing as straight as possible. Yeah, agreed. Not uncommon that I send them back yeah. on you know any any patient without an acute injury to get it done again. All right, so our second article is out of JPO, and it comes from UVA, and it is entitled "Quadriceps Strength is Influenced by Skeletal Maturity in Adolescents Recovering from ACLs." Uh, so the study basically compared ACL patients with open versus closed physis. So interesting, somewhat original. They found more immature uh, patients actually recovered strength and function faster, uh, which they thought was a little bit counterintuitive, especially males with open physis really seemed to bounce back the fastest. 
The study is not perfect. For example, most of the patients with open physes got hamstrings, sometimes physeal sparing. Most of the patients with closed physes got BTB. But, you know, I thought this was a good point. To me, it wasn't entirely surprising because as the authors note, patients with open physes just have a lot of growth hormone floating around in their systems, which is great for healing. I bet if we injected those older patients with some growth hormone, they might bounce back a little faster too. Yeah, they'd hit a lot more home runs too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those younger patients may just have less muscle to lose. So they get back to symmetry faster than the other patients. Does this, does this jive with what you guys are seeing in, in your practices or is this a surprise? Yeah, I, I think so. I think just, you, I mean, you said it, you know, uh, be, youth is a powerful ally and uh, the younger you are tend to be the, just in general in most of the things that we see. I, I was a little bit surprised though, just because when you're thinking about overall strength, you know, being older and having a close vice, you just imagine those, those kids are just stronger in yeah. general. But uh, I guess, um, it does make sense that the younger you are, the quicker you're going to bounce back. I guess I never thought of it in that exact term that the younger patients are bouncing back quicker, but uh, I agree with you guys. It makes intuitive sense. Just never quantified it. And I'm not sure I've stratified my 13 year olds from my 18 year olds quite that way. Right. Well, yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I it, this was a little bit surprising to me when I read it. Um, I didn't know quite what to make of it. And I think, there's a couple things here. I mean, I think one is that they're using um, these isokinetic dynamometers or whatever to measure just kind of like isolated flexion and uh, extension and stuff. I think that's that's useful to a certain degree, but um, I think there's limitations in terms of what that actually means practically. Um, and I think we're still trying to figure out what that really means practically. And, you know, I think Carter, as you that brought up a good point, is is uh, do the younger kids maybe just have less strength to lose sort of from a baseline? Because correct me if I'm wrong, I believe they're comparing here the injured knee to the contra to the uninjured, right? So, and we know also that it's kind of like a moving target, right? We, some people have compared this to comparing two flat tires, where for whatever reason during the course of your ACL injury and surgery and rehab, your quote unquote good knee, your uninjured knee, does tend to lose some strength and stuff like that too. So, you know, are, are you really comparing the surgical leg to the kind of the gold standard, or are we kind of comparing two flat tires? So, I just wonder if because the younger kids have a little less strength to lose at baseline, meaning their tires sort of already a little flat, you know, do they, do they kind of show better numbers with this? I don't know. And then I think the other part of it is obviously you, know, you guys are all familiar with all the functional testing that that therapy does, you know, hop tests and wide balance and tuck jumps and all these good things. Um, to me, in a lot of ways, that's, I wouldn't necessarily say, head and head and shoulders, uh, you know, more important than this, but I think to some degree more important because that functionally tells me kind of what they're doing and their mechanics and their proprioception and all those other factors that are very important in ACL rehab and risk of re-injury. I totally agree with that. You know, those functional tests are, are dynamic tests, much more important than the isokinetic tests. Yeah. You know, I will say though, now that I th- sort of think about it, the patients that I worry about the most and the ones that, you know, I've just struggled with the most who keep coming back after an ACL and just aren't there and I send them for more therapy and then they come back and they're not there. It's really big patients for the most part. And, you know, in my mind, at least I've been telling myself, they just have an enormous quadricep they have to redevelop. And, you know, so that's completely anecdotal, but um, it does, it's sort of, sort of fit with what I've seen. Yeah, it's interesting. And Carter, you brought up another good point: is that the um, the graph types used in this study uh, for the closed vices were almost all BTB versus almost all hamstrings for the open vices. Um, so you almost wonder: well, is it somewhat biased from in the sense that you know you're taking away a little something from the extensor mechanism with that graph, and then you know because of that you get this issue. So 
I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting and it's food for thought and maybe, um, you know, uh, sort of an impetus for future future research. Yeah, agreed. So next up, we next up is a big one. We've got a uh, article that was so. I guess the reason we're looking at it is because there's a e publication that just came out in JBJS, but that is specifically a commentary by Dr. Brian Warner at UVA about another article which had actually come out had been published back in February in AJSM. So we can sort of look at these and think of these two together. The original article was entitled Lateral Extraarticular Tenodesis, or LET, Reduces Failure of Hamstring Tendon Autograft ACLs. So this was a giant, very impressive multicenter RCT from the Stability Study Group. You've, you've got to have your catchy study group name, and uh, they got it. So they had 618 patients. And to be included, you basically had to be considered high risk to have another, a repeat ACL tear. So that meant you had to meet two of three criteria. You had to have a high-grade pivot shift. You had to plan to return to uh, pivoting sports and or you had to have generalized laxity. And uh, all the patients got a hamstring ACL. And then each one was randomized to either just get the ACL or to also get the LET or ALL, you might say anterior lateral ligament reconstruction with part of the IT band. They found very good results. After two years, 11% of the straight ACL group re-ruptured, only 4% with the uh, augmented uh, LET, the augmentation with the LET had re-ruptured. So that's a big difference. You know, the study is not perfect. They're all getting hamstrings, whereas a lot of people would probably be doing BTBs or quads on these high-risk patients. But still, that's, that's a big difference. Very uh, statistically significant. So, you know, I have not been doing LETs, um, but I think this study is enough to change my, my practice. And I plan to consider it very strongly in these high-risk patients, these, uh, you know, high-level athletes, high school, college athletes. The, that commentary from Dr. Warner said similar stuff, very, very positive about it. Um, he brought up some good weaknesses, including that the, the pivot chip, uh, shift is somewhat subjective. Agree. But, you know, he urged all ACL surgeons to, to start looking at uh, LETs for, for these patients, which I think makes a lot of sense. Is, in, is anyone doing these routinely? I'm doing them on revisions, in revision settings yeah. primarily. I mean, this, yeah. this article, actually, I, I agree with you, Carter, that this may actually change that patient that I see that, you know, is hypermobile. Um, the, I think the majority of this younger group seems to be going back to sport. I'm not doing very many on, I'm not seeing many people who are planning not to go back to sport. So that one kind of gets thrown out. I, I guess I agree with Warner that it's really hard to get a consistent pivot. And I feel like some people's knees, uh, it's tough to do, tough to do anything while they're awake, obviously, but in the operating room, you just don't get, I'm not sure that I could give you, I know when one's really loose, but I'm not sure I could grade them out more so than, oh, that one's really loose or that one's subtle. Yeah, I'll say so. I, I will fully admit I am a huge stability fan. I think this this trial, not to sound like a total geek, maybe I am, uh, <laughs> and that's fair, but th I think this, this study was phenomenal. And, um, you know, we'd kind of been hearing about it for a while. It won a, an award at AOSSM, I think, and yeah. you know, finally, finally got published. And, um, yeah, this is, you know, in 2020, almost 2021, this is, I think, kind of like the gold standard of, um, orthopedic sports medicine studies, right? Like this is how you do it. I mean, they, they even blinded the, uh, post-op exam, yeah. um, f and everything from, from the, uh, from the surgeons, they had staff to do that. They, there's one subset of the R uh, study, I believe that got MRIs post-op at two years and stuff like that. Um, so really, really impressive stuff. It's not perfect. I mean, no study is, but this is at least in this day and age, I think as close as you can get with this kind of study. So 
Um, anyway, I'll stop being a fanboy for a second, but yeah, I, th- I think this is interesting stuff. I'm, um, I'm really into, again, not to sound, I'm making myself sound like a huge dork here, but I'm, I'm very much into the ALL and these kind of anterolateral tenodesis type of procedures. I think, you know, there's something to it. There's obviously still, you know, people say, well, the ALL, it's not even a real ligament. It's a capsular thickening. It's not a real thing. The way I look at all that is you can call it what you want, but if there's a procedure that I can do with relatively low risk that r- improves the re-injury rate in these very high-risk young patients that we treat, then I'll do it. You can call it whatever you want, L-E-T, A-L-L, you know, whatever it is. But So I, I do it a decent amount on my primaries. I would say uh, roughly <clears throat> 20% maybe of my primaries end up getting an A-L-L reconstruction, um, and I certainly do it in revision scenarios too. Um, and I will just throw in a quick plug. We are starting a similar randomized control trial hopefully soon. We were It's not going to be stability because that thing was almost picture perfect, but uh, we hope to make it close. So we also have a SNAZI uh, acronym. We're calling it PALET, so Pediatric ALL Evaluation and Trial. And uh, we got a little seed funding from POSNAN, so we're, we're going to try to start that. So if you guys or anyone else is interested in potentially jumping on, on board down the line, certainly let me know. We can talk about it. But um, I think this is a very hot topic, clearly. I think there's something to it. You know, we need long-term follow-up. And obviously, one big concern that a lot of people have brought up traditionally over the years is is the idea of uh, lateral over-constraint, right, um, with these procedures. And I think that comes from back in the day before we had great anatomic intraarticular ACL reconstruction techniques. People were just doing like a Macintosh procedure or something like that alone to kind of stabilize the knee. And then obviously, those <clears throat> patients didn't do well and had a lot of arthritis early and stuff like that. Um, I think in the setting of current anatomic arthroscopic ACL reconstruction techniques, as long as you tension that ACL well first, probably doing an LET or some one of these kind of procedures, you know, I, I don't know that it would necessarily dramatically raise that risk of arthritis. That is probably already there for these kids when they tear their ACL, unfortunately, right? So remains to be seen. But uh, I think this is very, very promising, and I think we still need to get more evidence, but this is good stuff. And I, I know Stability 2 is underway as well, I think. So they're doing, I believe, BTB and quad grass for the second uh, trial that they're conducting. I think that's going to be so valuable because I do almost all quad, and you know, knock on wood, we've just got so few failures with quad that I, I don't know that this is this is necessary. But based on this study, I, you know, it's clearly beneficial. How are you doing it? Take us through briefly, like what are you doing, IT band or what's your technique? Yeah, so I I kind of um, you know, there's always different uh, LET techniques that yeah. are out there, and certainly right. all these different ALL techniques too. And right. you could argue what's an LET and what's an ALL. Um, so. I consider mine to be kind of an ALL because at least one part of it kind of attaches at the femoral and tibial sort of anatomic insertion points that have been described in the literature, but call it what you will, like I said. Um, but basically what I do is I take the, I use the IT band. So okay. leave it attached to Gertie's tubercle, um, detach approximately, and then uh, we bring that strip around and somewhere near kind of the midpoint of that, I'll tack that down onto the distal femur, so slightly posterior and proximal to the uh, epicondyle which is, seems to be the most commonly described place that the ALL attaches on the femur, although there is some variation in the literature there. And then um, the other limb of it comes down into an anchor uh, on the proximal tibia, uh, halfway between Gertie's tubercle and the fibular head. So there, it's kind of like an inverted V, essentially, then. Um, the first limb goes from Gertie's to the distal femur, and that I, I tension and fix in more flexion. So that I think provides potentially anyway um, some stability and a little bit more flexion. And then I extend the knee with neutral rotation and tack it down on the tibia as kind of like the quote unquote anatomic ALL uh, part of it, if you will. So um, that's what we've been doing. I mean, 
Uh, Carter, I agree. I think we, you know, I've been doing almost exclusively quad, and that's been knock on wood, very promising so far. So we'll see. But uh, I, I've still been doing this uh, ALL on kids that we think are at increased risk of failure. Totally makes sense. It's yeah. hard for me to conceptualize that this would tighten enough that it could cause lateral compartment uh, arthritis. But I know that that old data is out there with something like 20-year follow-up um, in some cases. And like you said, who's to say that that is from the initial injury or what it's from? How do you guys sort of conceptualize that? Do you think it, you, know, you tighten it and it's not truly isometric? And then when they spend time in flexion, it's it's too tight or how do you, do you have a, is there a way in your mind that that makes sense that that would be causing arthritis down the line? It's a rotational thing. Uh, and it, I mean, okay, you could clearly put it in, you can put them in a ton of valgus and then try to put it in, or you could do, I think it's really a rotational thing in my mind. Like it, if you've got them, um, if you're trying, if you've got the knee in the wrong position when you're putting it down, or uh, as we were sort of talking about, we're doing this in isolation. I think those are the patients that probably have more of an issue with right. constraint. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and there have been biomechanical studies on different uh, LET and ALL techniques, kind of comparing how much constraint there is and stuff like that. And, you know, again, those are good, but sort of cadaver studies got taken with a little grain of salt, I think, too. But I think Dax brought up a good point. I think a lot of it is it's a rotational thing. And so, you know, when you're, if you are tensioning it and fixing it with the tibia are super rotated and tight and, you know, whatever, then maybe that increases the risk. Um, I usually just do it in neutral rotation, let the tibia sit where it kind of wants to be and then do it that way. And I think the other key thing is to make sure you tension your ACL and really get that down nice and snug first, because, you know, kind of going back to that old literature from way back in the day before they were doing kind of anatomic ACLs, I think a lot of that over-constraint issue became because there wasn't really an anatomic ACL in the middle of the knee, kind of um, holding down the fort in terms of rotational stability there. And then when you kind of did this uh, LET procedure, it would really just kind of you know, hunker down on the, on the lateral compartment. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that there can't be uh, over-constraint here and maybe 5, 10, 15 years from now, we will find that it's a problem. I don't know. Um, that's why we need the data. But um, I agree. I, I think, you know, with the current surgical techniques that we have, hard to see that this would be a, a huge, huge issue. I'm probably going to try to learn more from you in the future as I start doing these on, uh, on select patients. Oh, last, last question for you, Neeraj. Who in your clinic, who's that 20%? How do you decide who's getting those primarily? Yeah, so again, admittedly, you know, there isn't great evidence uh, to guide uh, who exactly benefits from it or not. And that's certainly one of the things that we'll try to figure out with all these studies. Um, to me, it's it's sort of the highest risk people. So obviously, everyone we're treating is young anyway. I know Daxi take care of adults too, I guess. But, you know, when I see 18 or under, that already kind of puts you in that higher risk age group, right? So, so that's already there. So then on top of that, if you have generalized laxity, so bait and score of over four um, is usually when I'll talk to them about it. Um, if, you're, if your uh, knee normally hyperextends beyond 10 degrees, we'll talk about that. If they are, if there's a Sagan fracture, sometimes we'll talk about it then. You know, there's some theorizing now that maybe a Sagan fracture is kind of a, an avulsion, quote unquote, of the ALL, or, you know, at the very least indicates some degree of injury to that anterolateral capsular uh, area. Um, and then high-grade pivot shift is the other thing. So I think, you know, certainly if they have like a grade three, then we'll consider it now, obviously, like. I think Dax mentioned earlier, it's often tough to get a great pivot, um, especially uh, preoperatively in the clinic and stuff like that. So if we're on the fence, I'll say maybe we're going to do it. And then once we're, they're asleep, I'll re-examine them and, and get a feel for that. Um, I'll also do it in chronic situations. So kids that are six or more months out. Um, because And there has been some research, I think, um, some prospective level two research, I think, internationally 
on that. And it seems to um, have benefits for people that have chronic ACL injuries. I think the thinking there is that even though it's just your ACL that's injured, the longer it goes on, you have an unstable knee. I think some of those other anterolateral structures may also get kind of stretched out and loosened. So, and then last thing, and, and I'll stop yapping here, but uh, last thing we consider is certainly the the uh, age and sport activity level, sex as well. You know, females are typically thought of being a uh, higher risk of, of re-injury than males. But, you know, if you have like that 13-year-old female soccer player, chances are they're going to have one of those other risk factors anyway. But that's somebody that, you know, we sort of think about uh, doing that on. Yeah. Totally makes sense. All right, let's move on. Next up, another article from AJSM. AJSM sort of dominates this episode. We've had a, more of a spread in the past. This article is entitled Four Risk Factors for Arthrofibrosis in Tibial Spine Fractures. It's another multi-centered study. Um, for this paper, it, it was centered out of CHOP for this part of the research, their research effort. They looked at uh, 249 patients with tibial spine fractures and basically tried to figure out how to predict who's going to get arthrofibrosis. We all know it's a notorious complication. And um, they found four predictors. One, relatively young age with an average cutoff probably under 12. Two, a concomitant ACL tear, which makes sense, a bigger injury. Three, a traumatic non-sport injury. So, you know, the car crashes, not the, not the sports stuff. And then four, post-op casting. So, of course, the authors recommended against casting. Otherwise, at least... To me, these are mostly for family counseling. I prefer a knee immobilizer anyway, so I don't really see this changing my practice. Did anyone have any other more concrete takeaways or any other any other thoughts on this study? Yeah, th- this was this was nice. Um, so I, I'm this is uh, the Prism Tibial Spine Research Interest Group. They put this out kind of right before I got on there, but this was nice to do. That we we've really kind of put together a large multi-center database retrospectively initially and soon to be uh, starting to collect some prospective data on these kids. It's a very rare injury, as we all know. So it, to me, one of the things that it, it was was kind of nice, it, it sort of validated some, uh, made me feel better in some ways, uh, validated some of my experiences where these youngest kids that are five, six, seven, eight, you know, even, and just have a really hard time rehabbing and, you know, a lot of anxiety and apprehension and stuff like that. Um, for me, those are the ones that have gotten stiff. And um, so it was interesting to see that that sort of pattern um, was echoed in, in this data. I think, you know, it was interesting. We, we wrote up, I wrote up with Ganley years ago when I was a medical student, the initial paper on arthrofibrosis after tibial spines. And we found some risk factors just in terms of like how long you were immobilized and stuff like that. So I think practice has changed a little bit in terms of, you know, nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but less common to, to cast it postoperatively and stuff like that. You know, I, I agree. I think a lot of this is patient counseling, certainly telling you, hey, well, this is how you got hurt. This is your age. So you might be at higher risk for arthrofibrosis. But also, um, I think it does potentially provide some grounds for uh, prevention or intervention, right? So if you have somebody who maybe is younger or was injured, let's say, in a car crash, then maybe that's somebody that postoperatively, you know, maybe you try to get a CPM immediately post-op, which certainly there's a lot of issues with that in terms of insurance and whatever else, but that's one option. Um, we, I've been somewhat aggressive in some of these higher-risk kids about uh, starting dynamic splinting early on in the post-op course. Um, that's another thing that has generally sh- been shown to be beneficial in pediatric post-op knees. So I think, you know, counseling is there, but then also targeting some of those higher-risk kids with some of these other interventions early on to try to prevent arthrofibrosis is another potential benefit of having this data. Is it fair to say everyone's pretty much casting type 1s, uh, straightening type 2s to, to make a decision between surgery and non-op, and then uh, scoping type 3s? Yeah. As Niraj said, it's pretty rare, but uh, I've only seen in my practice like probably 10 of these, 5 to 10. Uh, it's not been many, and it sounds pretty standard. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's generally what I do too. I think for the type twos, there's obviously a lot of debate. You know, can kind of go either way. If they come in with a type two with an MRI that shows on the MRI clearly that there's like anterior horn medial meniscus or intermeniscal ligament socked in right in the fracture bed, then those I usually don't necessarily try to you know force them in extension and take an X-ray and all that because I can see on the MRI that there's something blocking it. So those I'll usually just indicate for surgery. But um, in the absence of that kind of MRI or MRI finding, I will yeah try to try to um, extend them and see what the x-ray looks like and see if it kind of converts to a type one or not. Yeah. This, this study, um, I can't remember if it was this study being discussed. It was, uh, something out of the, the prism rig with Dr. Henry Ellis, who's a, an author on here describing a reduction technique, which I thought was really innovative, which is sort of, Oh yeah. Um, are you familiar with that? And I forget all the details. I've got it written down. Yeah. Go and look at it when I need it. But it's basically like an anterior drawer to try to pull, <laughs> uh, you know, pull out of the intermeniscal ligament if you're tucked in under there. Then go into extension and get a fluoro shot and see if you accomplished anything. Which yeah, know, it's, I don't know. It's totally validated, but I think it's very, very clever and logical. It's the Dallas special, man. I, I don't know. I don't know that there's a lot of other people that have uh, been able to do it, but they seem to do it at TSRH and it works sometimes. So I, I also don't remember the specifics of it to be totally honest but uh definitely interesting and uh you know it seems to work for them yeah all right well hopefully none of us uh see too many tibial spine fractures coming up uh next up is an article out of arthroscopy so this is not strictly for uh, our young patient population but i think it's very relevant and i was very interested reading it it is entitled arthroscopic bankart repair versus conservative management for first-time traumatic anterior shoulder instability a systematic review and meta-analysis out of nyu and the title sort of tells you what it's all about but the author's analyzed the patients from 10 previous studies. In total, they got 569 patients, and they had pretty pretty striking findings. They found significantly better outcomes with surgery for first-time shoulder dislocators. One, less recurrent instability, 10% versus 67%. So you know, one in 10 versus two out of three having recurrent instability. That was the big finding. And then if you got the banker repaired first, you only had a 6% risk of further surgery versus about 50% risk for non-op. Of course, you already got surgery, so that that's not you know a totally definitive stat. And then the return to play with the banker was ninety three percent versus eighty one percent for non op. So a difference, significant difference, not an enormous difference. But I like this. This is not something that I've ever offered based on my training and the sort of traditional philosophy. But I think this study is again enough to change my practice, especially in an athlete. Is anyone fixing first time dislocators or planning to in the future? Uh, this is sort of how I was trained out outside of residency and fellowship to to handle these so basically in the younger population i see if you dislocate you're getting an mr you're getting an arthrogram um and i will if they have no findings um i'll let them rehab and and obviously go back to sport and see how they do um i've been burned i do a lot of the i'd say 70 70 of my practice is shoulder so i see a lot of young instability patients I've been burned a couple of times by uh, inconclusive findings and also like anterior labral periosteal sleeve avulsions that you just can't see very well on the MRI in some cases, especially if they're chronic. But um, I've anecdotally in my, my own practice, this has been sort of how it bore out. It's the patients that I've let try to get back to sports, finish out the season. They had a bank art. They were like, yeah, it's fine. I just want to get through it they've struggled more. Uh, and honestly, I just revised one that we waited to get him through basically an entire high school year. And then he kept dislocating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's 
I, I mean, I think it's a well-done study and, and I kind of agree with them. If you've got a tear, you, we've got a very, I feel like bank arts uh, in previous sort of to our generation of uh, the level of arthroscopic technique that we have to do these now, they were just this massive undertaking. I talked to older surgeons and, you know, shoulder instability was a terrible thing to treat because the surgeries were so barbaric. I mean, an open yeah, bank. Open. Yeah. Um, you dig for an hour and a half, the best surgeons are digging for an hour and a half through a huge window to a tiny hole to try and stabilize the shoulder with like one anchor or bone tunnels way back in the day. So I think we have a relatively quick, easy intervention that really helps these, these people. Yeah. Niraj, what are you doing and for first time dislocators? Yeah, Dax, thanks for, I mean, a lot of good points you bring up. Um, yeah, I, I am not routinely offering surgery to first-time dislocators at this point. I've operated on one so far, and this 13-year-old girl who dislocated her shoulder for the first time snowboarding, so like kind of high energy, had a pretty big bony bank cart, and was like ligamentally lax, super active, athletic, all this kind of stuff, so, and had a big kill sacks that was engaging and all these kind of things. So she had like all the hallmarks of, you know, a bad future, I feel like, if you treated it non-operatively. So she's the one uh, that I've treated uh, after first time so far. But I agree. I mean, um, I think there seems to be a slow swing of the pendulum towards maybe considering uh, first time dislocating patients, uh, offering them surgery. You know, I think the question is who exactly? Um, certainly, I think you can make an argument for some of these higher risk, young, active athletic people to, to do something. I think any any systematic reviews only as good as the data gets, that gets into it. Obviously, they've only taken level one and two studies here, so that's great. It's only 10 studies, so you know, take from that what you will, but certainly an interesting, interesting food for thought. And uh, I would also say shout out to Eric Strauss and Michael A, who wrote this, because they helped uh, helped train me up back in uh, New York City. So, Dom, what do you think? What do you, what do you think? Are you operating yeah, on any of these? Uh, usually not on the first time, but the, the thing that it is, is you tell them that their chances of coming out again are quite high. And once you get to that second, and it, again, it's, it's, it's your choice in patients. The, uh, uh, the athletes, um, well, they oftentimes are coming right back in again. And so that second time around, you're going with, uh, you know, MR arthrogram and fixing them almost always after that second dislocation. I think then I push, push hard for it because you know, there's going to be a third right around the corner. I think that's I think that's the way to go. But I, I really I like the this uh, this meta analysis and I like this other one too that we're gonna get into as well. But uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to push more towards being more and more and more aggressive, especially in those uh, high risk athletes. I think so. There was a an editorial accompanying this in Arthroscopy uh, by Matthew uh, Preventure. He brought up the good point that you know this recurrent instability if you're treated non-op is not necessarily. Um, without consequence, you know, you could be having persistent damage with every instability event, which, you know, I think, I think we all know or assume, but um, to me, to me, it definitely tilts things towards early operation. I think I would want mine fixed after the first time. And I think there's an attritional bone loss thing that we, we don't really, yeah. I mean, yes. yeah. these patients have sort of mild subluxation events uh, and they come in, they're like, yeah, my shoulder sort of does something every so often. And, but it never, no, no one's had to pop it back in since that one time it popped out. Uh, and then you get a MRI and it looks funny. You get a CT and they've got 15% bone loss. And then now you have a whole different discussion of uh, obviously a huge conversation of what you do at that point. But I feel like you can actually attempt to prevent those issues in the right, with the right patient selection if you are aggressive with these kids. 
For sure. And, and I kind of tell that to, I mean, I have kids who come in with already recurrent dislocations and I talk to them about surgery and I recommend it and all that, give them the pros and cons, but ultimately recommend it. And for whatever reason, they're like, Mm-mm, I don't want it. Goodbye, whatever. And I tell them, I'm like, look, that's fine. You can live with it. But the attritional bone loss issue is there. And so like, you know, if we wanted to go back later and do something down the line, there's a chance that you might be missing a big chunk of your glenoid. And then what are we doing? You know? Um, so I think that's an absolutely great point that you, that you bring up. Um, quick question for the group. Are, are you guys, and I think Dax, you mentioned that you're typically getting MR arthrograms even for first time dislocators. So like anyone who comes to the door, is it accurate? What are you, what are the other guys doing? And Dax, correct me if I'm, if I'm, uh, misspeaking. That's short of some like, you know, um, social situation where they can't obviously pull that off. Um, right. in this young, in the patient population, sort of the under 20 kind of group, or then 20 to 30, like active collegiate kind of athlete. It's really the under 20 group that I, I push hard that they all get an arthrogram. Yeah, agreed. Got it. Yeah. You know, I, I'll tell you, I, I typically don't get an MR arthrogram for a first time dislocator unless, you know, something else seems like it's going on there. But, uh, you know, this systematic review and what you guys are saying may, uh, may maybe reconsider that a little bit. Uh, so next up, let's look at this other uh, shoulder article. I think this one might be a, a quicker discussion, but it was an AJSM out of Belgium called Prediction of Shoulder Pain in Youth Competitive Swimmers. Um, and they prospectively found uh, and followed 200 high-level swimmers. They all started with shoulder without shoulder pain. They were all followed for two years. And then they tried to figure out what would predict shoulder pain. I think about 20% uh, developed shoulder pain ultimately. It was predicted by the level of competition, uh, an acute increase in your workload, weak posterior shoulder muscles, or hand entry error. So, you know, nothing shocking, but it's nice to have a little checklist of things to think about and go over. So for me, I guess I was mostly surprised, one, by in this high uh, level uh, swimming population, just how many people get shoulder pain. You know, we all think about shoulder pain in swimmers, but... I didn't really think that one in five would, would get substantial shoulder pain if you just follow them for two years without any other sort of tip off. And the only thing I think this would really change for my practice is when I send these kids to PE or PT, I would specifically, I'll probably specifically start saying to focus on the posterior shoulder. Hopefully that's what's happening anyway, but just to, you know, really cover all the bases. Anyone have any other takeaways or, or have any other uh, things that they keep in mind with swimming shoulders? Now the biceps tendon is one of the ones that I uh, focus on too. And a lot of that, I think, is from the technique. I don't know. I swim uh, a bit in those folks that cross over a lot. And they're recreational swimmers. The higher-level swimmers obviously have good coaching and usually have good technique. But you're, you know, you're sort of average kid in high school. Uh, sometimes they're missing out on, on some maybe some technique. And they get if they're crossing over on their, on their stroke, they end up with a lot of anterior shoulder pain and biceps tendonitis. All right. Let's see. I think we got one more. We're going to talk oh, about this other one. All right. This one is an AJSM. Uh, out of Japan. This was uh, satisfaction with elbow function and return status after uh, oats or capitellar osteochondritis desiccans in high school baseball players. Uh, they had 32 elbows in baseball players uh, that re- received oats for capitellar OCDs. They broke the kids into uh, pitchers and non-pitchers. Uh, and they evaluated, uh, they had an outcome score, the Timmerman Andrews. Uh, they were looking at subjective and uh, objective measures for that. And then looking at uh, who returned to baseball and then their satisfaction level. So they broke them into, uh, again, the pitchers and the non-pitchers. And interestingly, all the pitchers made it back to, to playing again, um, which is probably the, you know, sometimes the pitchers are the better athletes or the more motivated athletes in this age group anyway. So they're, they're getting back to uh, sport, but not necessarily pitching. So while they were able to return to the overhead sport, they weren't necessarily able to uh, perform at their previous level, which is where the satisfaction scores, I think, come in is not being able to get back to that high level. So this is a bad problem. This is not a good problem to have, especially an overhead throwing athlete that's relying on their 
their elbow for a, a high level activity, but you know, they were able to get back to batting, at least get back to, to uh, playing. So I find in my opinion, I think that's, that's a good outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was overall pretty promising. We can expect good outcomes and uh, even these high demand patients. I've had a harder time. What are your? Go- oh, sorry. I, sorry I've had a harder time with like I, you know this is again small anecdotal stuff. I've had patients who've had uh, disease that was actually. I have two patients who their lesions were actually farther medial. I mean, it was a capitular OCD, but sort of crossed into what you know the trochlear area. Yeah. And I did not offer them an osteotomy, which is what I think I would have needed to get to it to actually do a graft and a microfractured uh, and they've sort of struggled along and I don't know if anybody not to hijack the conversation but I, I think this is a great article and that I, I I would like to offer this to patients when it is a capitular lesion uh, in that right patient population but I've just had trouble with this I haven't had the the success that they've sort of had but I don't know if it's just a selection thing I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, certainly this is promising, like we said. I would have loved to see uh, comparing oats to potentially like marrow stimulation techniques or something like that, right? So uh, obviously there's a lot of gray area in terms of how we treat OCD of the elbow and, you know, when to do what procedure and stuff like that. But certainly I've, in training and and in practice, for unstable capitular OCD lesions, you kind of debride it, do a microfracture or you know, that kind of thing, um, or some kind of marrow stimulation if, if you can. And yeah, you know, I don't know, anecdotally, they seem to do okay, but that's what I would be curious to know. Like if you were to do something like that, marrow stimulation, microfracture, that kind of thing, where does that put you relative to someone who's getting oats? Right. So I don't know. I think there's a lot to figure out obviously with OCD. And that's one of the questions that I would, that I would want to know before I subject somebody to, you know, taking plugs from their knee, throwing it in their elbow or doing an allograft or we, you know, fly in a very expensive graft and, and do all that stuff. Completely agreed. Uh, this article made me wonder would all of these patients just gotten a microfracture in my practice, uh, you know, barring a huge lesion or something really surprising. That's definitely my first line. And you know, I have not done a lot. Um, they're pretty few and far between, but anecdotally, anecdotally, they've they've done very well and responded really well to to microfracture. Yeah, I've done I've done one osteochondral allograft on a kid who had a drilling done elsewhere, and then I think maybe they just went back to sport too quickly or something like that, and, and never healed, and then actually got worse. Um, and he was a catcher, huge, huge guy, so you know, constantly in a deep squat. So I was like, well. You know, instead of taking uh, autograph plugs from his knee and potentially risking some donor site morbidity there in this big guy who was a catcher, uh, we decided to do an, an allograft instead and knock on wood. He's been, he's been doing okay so far. But again, that was a, more of a special situation where we're doing any kind of grafting rather than something more simple. Yeah. Dax, what about for you? Are there any patients that would, in your practice, primarily get uh, either autograph or allograft? Or are all those patients that you were sort of thinking of would be failed uh, microfractures. I would, with the latter mostly, it would take a gigantic lesion for me to say, hey, you're just not, you're just not going to have a chance with a microfracture. And from a ability to talk to the families and, and unless they've been sent to you saying, hey, somebody told me I need a cartilage transplant. Even if you're, there's a borderline patient, it's, I've found that it's hard to tell the family that, hey, we need to take something from this kid's knee and plug it into his elbow and he'll do okay, potentially. Um, I usually try a microfracture first. And for the most part, as it sounds like you guys have had, I've had pretty good results. But one kid who overgrew and had sort of mechanical type symptoms after a microfracture uh, and had to have a debridement afterwards. But outside of that, everybody's done pretty well. Interesting. 
this article sort of strikes me as another, like we talked about last time, sort of a, a testament to uh, what happens with single sport specialization uh, yeah. with, with baseball in Japan, where, you know, you're able to do uh, a series of 32 elbow <laughs> procedures. Yeah. Um, I think that would take me about two careers at the pace I'm going. <laughs> Tell you the, the Japanese baseball studies, nothing like it. Yeah, for real. Um, all right. Well, that's all. That's all I've got. Thank cool. you, guys.